If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4 this morning, we will be looking at verses 2 through 6. Title of our sermon is Seasoned with Salt, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are prayer, salt, and speech. And if you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 985, page 985. Now, one of my favorite things to do is to read books and articles that are written by the most crafty wordsmiths. There's nothing quite like a well-crafted sentence or phrase or paragraph that makes a reader want to continue reading, no matter what the genre of literature might be. I'm particularly fond of witty statements, and you might be surprised to learn that I have a particular fondness for playful banter that is delivered with precision. There have been a few men and women throughout history who have been particularly skilled at this fine art. Winston Churchill is one of the more quotable figures of history who I would put in this category. One time Lady Astor told him, Winston, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your coffee. And immediately he responded, Nancy, if I were your husband, I would drink it. Another time, a lady approached him at a party and said, Sir, you are drunk, to which he replied, And, Madame, you are ugly, but tomorrow when I wake up, I shall be sober. (laughs) You are probably familiar with other quotes from Winston Churchill. He's the one who first said, A lie gets halfway around the world before truth has a chance to get its pants on. Now, he's not the only one. The great reformer Martin Luther is also quite adept at delivering some zingers, some that I dare not repeat this morning. He knew how to throw some serious shade to those he was engaged with. In one treatise called Against Handsworth, Luther wrote, For you are an excellent person, as skillful, clever, and versed in Holy Scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. In another treatise, he wrote against the papacy. He said the Pope was, quote, a toad eater and a fawner. (laughs) However, Luther also had, we all know, very profound things to say, very helpful things all throughout his Christian life. Things like, no sin is alone, but rather one always pulls the other after it. Or, wine is strong, the king is stronger, women stronger still, but the truth is the strongest helpful words. And so, in many ways, these kinds of statements might seem a bit abrasive to our 21st century ears. And as Christians, we wonder if believers should be saying things like Martin Luther or, uh, or others like him at all, especially someone like uh, Churchill and the kind of banter that he engaged in. Or you can watch, uh, you can watch uh, videos online even if you watch British Parliament and the way that they jab and spar with each other. Uh, If you watch the late Margaret Thatcher and the things that she said, uh, she was full of fire, and I enjoy watching it. But we need to remember, it was our Lord himself who referred to the scribes and Pharisees as being like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He also called them serpents. He called them a brood of vipers. 
This wasn't gentle speech. And many Christians have succumbed to the idea that what the Lord is after in our character and in our speech is niceness. But that's not the case at all. Yes, we should be loving. Yes, we should be tender-hearted. Yes, we should be kind. But being nice is not always the right response because niceness is focused on outward consequences. It's a desire to not cause problems or it's an attempt at people-pleasing to minimize conflict. The difference is that something like kindness is a heartfelt love for others and a desire for their well-being. Niceness is all about never wanting to cause offense and sometimes offense is necessary. So when we come to texts like what we see this morning as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians, there's a tendency to read Paul's statements, something that's not necessarily what is intended, what it means as it pertains specifically to our speech. First, Paul's going to lay out a call to prayer, and he's going to address our move toward the world, uh, specifically in evangelistic endeavors. And then he's going to address how it is that we're supposed to conduct ourselves in our speech. So let's continue working through Paul's letter, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, there's a lot here, and in many ways it may seem like sort of random rapid-fire thoughts from the apostle here as he's wrapping up his letter, but we're going to look closely at each one and see how they do, in fact, relate to one another. The first thing we see in verses 2 through 4 is that the Christian life is a life devoted to prayer. Again, look at these verses. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so right out of the gate here, Paul is addressing something that I'm certain all of us struggle with In many ways, it seems like it should be the easiest thing for us to do as Christians, but in so many ways, it's one of the most difficult. Remaining steadfast in prayer. Being watchful in prayer. It's a significant challenge for every Christian. And on top of that, he tells us to do it in a specific way. He says to do it with thanksgiving. Now, obviously, the people in Paul's day faced the very same temptations that we do to to quit praying altogether, to not be steadfast in prayer. But Paul is reminding us in the text that, that too much rides upon our faithfulness in prayer to just give it up. Now, listen, prayer is just as difficult and sometimes confusing to me as it might be for you. I know I cannot change God's mind. 
But at the same time, I know there are things in God's word that God has said will only happen if I pray. He knows whether or not I will pray. And see, he knows whether or not those things will come to pass. And as I think about all of those difficult realities to grasp in relationship to God's sovereignty and my responsibility to pray, I can, I can just as easily talk myself out of praying altogether and throw my hands up and say, what's the point? But the Bible doesn't give us that option, does it? We are commanded to pray, not for God's sake, but we're commanded to pray for our own sake. We are called to pray for others, for their sake, expressing our heart's desires to God, not for His benefit, He already knows our heart, but for our benefit and for the benefit of those for whom we pray. So even though Satan has been defeated at the cross, he and his demons are still active and, and the weaknesses of the flesh continue to abide and the possibilities of division in the church are still present and great opportunities to share the gospel are at every turn. And so Paul is saying, don't give up praying. Keep watch over yourself. Keep watch over your neighbor. Don't shrink back from prayer. It's what keeps your head in the game. It keeps you focused on your walk. It keeps you moving in the right direction. And again, I, I don't have any better answers for you about how prayer ultimately works, but God says to do it, and God responds to our prayers, and certain things God does because of our prayers, and we should trust the Scriptures when they make it clear for us that this simply is the case. By faith, we are called to pray and to trust that God uses our prayers in a way that we don't necessarily understand. However, I can say this. Steadfastness in prayer keeps us dependent upon God. It works in our hearts a sense of our constant need for God. Because by nature, we're all self-reliant. All of us are self-focused. And the better things are going in our life, it tends to be that we are more self-reliant and more self-focused and less directed toward depending on God in prayer. And so persistent prayer that we don't give up no matter what the circumstances in our lives are, persistent prayer is one way in which God reminds us that we are in desperate need of Him at every turn, even when we think we have it all figured out ourselves. Now, per, per, uh, persistent prayer helps us to think about things in the right perspective in terms of our priorities. We're most able to differentiate between selfish desires versus Christ-honoring desires when we are persistent in prayer. It works in us to root out our selfish motivations as we're praying, as we're thinking about the things we're, we're wanting to pray or the things that we are praying, we're, we're bringing to mind whether or not this is something that is, is for me, is, is selfish in my motivations, or is this ultimately to bring glory to God? Is this me wanting to live out my life for the advantage of others, or is this me wanting more comfort and more possessions and more wealth? We're forced to continually reevaluate re our motivations and aims when we are persistent in prayer. And in so doing, it cultivates a patience in our hearts. 
Persistent prayer helps us to be patient as we wait on the Lord to respond. The reality is that God never asks us to understand prayer and how it works. That was never anything He's commanded. But He does command us to be faithful and to persevere in our prayer. James reminds us, you do not have because you do not ask. I simply have to believe the Lord. Even though I might not be entirely satisfied with my desire being fulfilled to know more about how all of it works. Now, what Paul writes here in verse 2 might leave someone with the idea that prayer is an anxious, troublesome, fearful endeavor were it not for his statement that it is something that we are to do with thanksgiving. The tension with prayer that I've drawn out is this balance that probably all of us struggle to maintain with this reality that God is truly sovereign over all things and nothing slips out of his mind, nothing slips out of his hands. He will accomplish his purposes. And so Paul is exhorting us to pray always, to pray on high alert and to do so with thanksgiving because he wants to make sure that we are confident instead of fearful. God is forever, God is always on His throne. And the battles you are in have already been won ultimately in Christ. And so, let your gratitude for God and all that He is and all that He has done and all that He is doing, let that saturate your prayers. Let them be full of thanksgiving. And in so doing, you're not going to lose hope. You're not going to fall into despair or or live in fear that you will be abandoned in your time of greatest need. You know, so often our tendency is to go to God in prayer when we are feeling needy and helpless. But when all seems well, we sort of slacken our efforts. So we come... To God almost as acquaintances. We come before God as not as His children, not as those who are, who are connecting and, and confident in our Father. As a father hears from his, from his child, but as someone we once knew back in the day and now we're trying to reconnect with because we need something or we want something. You see, steadfastness in prayer keeps us in communion with God. It keeps us understanding as His children, we come to Him as our Father. And He doesn't push us away. He doesn't turn us away. He doesn't keep us from Himself. But He keeps us drawn near to Him that He would continue to show us that He loves us. He cares about us. He has our best in mind. Thankfulness turns the human soul toward heaven and away from self. Thankfulness, by its very nature, requires that we fix our focus on the fact that God is, that God is who He is, and we are reminded of what God has done and what God will do and what God currently is doing. And so thankful prayer is necessarily centered on Christ and not on us. And Paul goes on here and gives something very specific for prayer. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now again, we might think, God, why don't you just open these doors directly for Paul rather than telling him to tell us to pray for him? What's the point of asking you to do what you've already determined you will or will not accomplish? But quite simply, that's not how the Lord has determined he will operate, right? He prefers to work through our asking him. But you see why, I hope. I hope we have some understanding of why that is. Again, it's turning our hearts outward. It's making us mindful of him. It's making us mindful of the fact that only he can do that. It's making us mindful of the fact that others are functioning in this world as well and not just ourselves, and they too need the work of God in their lives. It's turning us away from ourselves and creating a love and a concern for God and for others. So what Paul is asking for here is the very thing we want to pray for and the very thing I try to model for us in praying in our pastoral prayer. We want to aid the the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we want to enlist the prayers of others on our behalf in our own gospel efforts. And we want to offer our prayers on behalf of others and their gospel efforts. And then as as God works in those gospel efforts, we we see our need for Him magnified all the more. We need him to do what he will do. And then we start to see all the more that he is supplying for our need. We see our lack and it draws attention to his abundance. We see God honoring and glorifying himself by overflowing in bountiful blessings on those who otherwise deserve only death and condemnation. And not only does he get the glory for being depended upon, but we get the gladness for being dependent upon Him. And so we don't ask a lot of people for prayer over a certain ministry effort because God is stingy and, and maybe Paul uh, thinks that if we have a multitude of intercessors, we just need thousands of people praying, then maybe we'll have success in prevailing on God's otherwise reluctant heart to do what only He can do. Now remember, this is about God's glory, and it's actually what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. It is so that many will give thanks for the blessing that God grants through these prayers of everything that God has given because we have done what He has called us to do. And so why would we ask a lot of people to pray for our gospel efforts? Is it so that we can twist God's arm hard enough that maybe He will relent and do what we've asked? No. It's so that more and more can join us in thanking God for the work that He has done. So that more and more can see the work of God. And as it is accomplished, and as He continues to pour out His bounty and His blessing, that they too can be blessed in knowing that God is doing this work for His glory. And so we see God honoring and glorifying Himself in this. And so when we pray for one another, we get gladness in receiving what God gives. And God gets glory when we get 
what we get, and he gets to give it to us. And so Paul's request here is very specific, isn't it? Paul asks for prayer, not for his own health, not for his freedom from prison, not for his comfort and his circumstances, but for the opportunity and for clarity to proclaim Jesus as Lord to lost and dying people. Now first, he asks them to ask God to open a door for the word that he might proclaim the mystery of Christ. The door evidently is closed. We, we don't know why, but we do know at the very least, he mentions uh, here and elsewhere in Colossians, that at this time of his writing, he is in prison. So that in and of itself is a bit of a closed door, I would say. In any case, Paul believed that God was sovereign over all circumstances and that he could remove obstacles, that he could overcome resistance, he could restrain the enemies of the faith when asked to do so by his people. And what might Paul do should the door be opened? He has one goal. He has one single solitary purpose, to proclaim the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, the revelation of what God has done in and through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to make possible the atonement for our sins and our forgiveness. That the Word should become flesh. It's a mystery made known for our salvation. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It is a mystery now revealed for our justification. That faith alone in a crucified Messiah and the power of God unto salvation is a mystery now made known for our eternal welfare. That if you and I, by faith, if we have placed our trust and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we need not depend on our failing works, that we need not look to ourselves and what we provide and who we think we are, whether we think we're good people or bad people, we all know that we are not people who have lived up to the perfect standard that God has called us to live up to. We cannot fulfill God's law. And so the mystery has been revealed that while you and I cannot live up to the law that God has commanded, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has. He has fulfilled the law. And he has done it not just for himself, but on our behalf to appease the wrath of God. And so by faith we can come to Him and trust in His work on our behalf in fulfilling that law that we need not turn to God as imperfect people without hope. Because not only did Christ fulfill the law, He took upon Himself the penalty of death on a cross that we need not receive the full weight of the wrath of God that is due to us because of all that we are and all that we have done as broken and sinful people. That Jesus Christ shed His blood and His body was broken for us on a cross that by faith as we trust in Him, as we continue to move toward Him, that we can be forgiven and stand not upon our own righteousness before the Father, before the judge, but to stand upon the righteousness of Jesus alone. Jesus who died on a cross and was buried in a grave and took three days in the grave that he might conquer Satan and sin and death and be raised again that we too might be raised to new life in him and live with him forever and ever. Do you know this, Savior? 
Do you know the God-man Jesus Christ who lived and died and was buried and resurrected that you might have true life, that you might come to him by faith and walk with him? This is the mystery of the gospel that the Apostle Paul wanted to proclaim. This is the mystery of the gospel that all of us are called to pray for that would be proclaimed around the world. This is the mystery of the gospel that we desire to proclaim and to hold dearly in our hearts, that of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God to transform and make new life. And so Paul wants to make this known. We want to make this known. And like Paul, we want to do it with clarity. May God be pleased by the prayers of His people to make His gospel clear. Secondly, we see, verse 5, Christians should take advantage of every opportunity to be of service to God in the world. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, this may seem like a statement that is oddly out of place, but taken with the previous verses, we see that it is related to this evangelistic task. And really, even without a focus on evangelism, this is just sound counsel all around, isn't it? Literally, Paul wrote, in wisdom, be walking. So godly wisdom encompasses the life as well as the words that we live and speak. At the beginning of the epistle, Paul prayed for the Colossians to know wisdom. And now he's, he's praying here for them to live out that wisdom. So to know the wisdom and now to work it out in our daily lives. And so why the exhortation to wisdom here? Why now? Well, wisdom was necessary because of their Christian testimony. The outsiders, those outside of the church, as Paul is referring to them here as outsiders. They needed examples of God's wisdom. And Paul's concern was the non-Christian's response to the gospel and the attitude of Christians toward them. Divine wisdom results in a positive witness. I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Again, probably not the language that if I said that and didn't tell you it was the Lord Jesus who said that, you would say, well, Pastor Nick, that is, wow, that's some, that's some pretty aggressive language to be using about people who aren't Christians. Well, this is the Lord Jesus, so take it up with him. <laughs> the prayer for wisdom is all about the fact that in something like this, we must be discerning about what we say and to whom we say it. There are times when we need to be bold and forthright as it concerns our witness to the gospel. But what Jesus is telling us is that there are also occasions in which we need to keep quiet because of the callousness and the hostility and the posture of those to whom we are talking. They are dogs, they are swine, and they will take these pearls and trample them in the dirt. They will trample them in the mud. John Piper explains, Wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. 
It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. That's a good description. It's helpful so that we can do what Paul says in the second part here, that we can make the best use of our time. The general idea is that God's people will make their time count for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. That we will use wisely every opportunity that God gives us to promote the kingdom of God. Now that always is going to look a little bit different depending on the circumstances. But we shouldn't let fear, we shouldn't let hesitation, we shouldn't let a lack of preparation or specific knowledge steal away the time the Lord gave us to introduce someone to the Savior. For some of you, it might be as simple as taking every opportunity the Lord gives you to give praise to Him for what He is doing. It's as simple as in our conversations with people, as things come up, that we not give praise to other people or to ourselves, but that we say, thank God. What a beautiful day it is today. Thank God. What a wonderful job we have been able to do here at work. Thank God. Thank God for, I thank God for you in the ways that you bless me and my family. If you're a boss, I thank God for you in the hard work that you are putting in here on the job. And on and on. We use that kind of language to acknowledge, again, with thankfulness, that God is the one at work. And for some, maybe that is taking an opportunity to at least give acknowledgement to the fact that God is at work. For some, the Lord has gifted you for evangelism and you take every opportunity that you can or you ought to take every opportunity to introduce people to the Savior, to lay out the truth of the gospel, to call them to faith in Christ. And so that looks different for all of us, depending on the gifts that God has given, but all of us should use our lives to give witness to the truth of the gospel in some way. And this wisdom that Paul is calling us to pray for, that we might make the best use of our time, it serves as a weapon against vilification It serves as a weapon against character assassination, and it also has the positive purpose of winning outsiders for Christ. Paul was fully aware of the fact that the the most effective way for Christians to spread the gospel far and wide so that it would be heard and understood and believed was to conduct themselves in such a manner that non-believers would say, look at them. Look at how they love each other. And in spite of all that we've said about them, in spite of all the things that we've done to them, they even love us and they continue to treat us with kindness, returning good for all the evil that we have done. I want that to be said about me. I want that to be said about us as a church. So we need to be mindful. We need to be mindful of how we conduct ourselves before the world. And we must take every opportunity the Lord gives us to give glory to God, and to give witness, to give testimony to His goodness and our thankfulness. But Paul continues to help us to understand how to do this in our final point this morning. In verse 6, he tells us that Christian speech should be unique. Christian speech should be unique. Look again, verse 6, he says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
Now, Paul's exhortation here is in three parts, so we're going to look at each of those three parts. The first one is that he says, let your speech always be gracious. So in similar fashion to what we saw with prayer, our, our speech should be that which is other-focused. In other words, we have an objective. We have an aim in our speech. And that objective, that aim, is to be focused on the advantage of others. This is the baseline for our speech. Grace is what we want to be communicated when we are speaking. Our words are to be rooted and grounded in grace. The fruit of our words should be gracious. Our message is grace. It proceeds from grace. It heads toward more grace. It's, as Paul described elsewhere, grace upon grace upon grace. And so this means that our speech will communicate love, and that love covers a multitude of sins. Our speech will communicate patience, that we are patient with others. Our speech will communicate the reality that we all share a need for redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are all sinners and we all make bad decisions and we all live self-focused lives and we have all regularly fallen short of God's standard and God's glory. And so our speech will communicate our recognition of our own hearts and our own sinfulness and our own need for forgiveness from others against whom we have sinned. And against God, against whom we have sinned most grievously. So our, our speech will communicate humility. However, in all of these things, it is often assumed, as I've said already, that our speech will always be what the world simply calls nice. Christians, it is assumed, are just supposed to say things that we can slap a G rating on And if it's turned into a movie, it's going to be rated G. But the problem is that the Bible itself isn't rated G. There's parts of it that are rated R. And the Lord doesn't require us, even from His own Word, to have this kind of G-rated speech. We have to be wise. We have to be discerning. We have to be understanding of what that means. But being gracious doesn't necessarily mean nice. Paul addresses this in his second part of the exhortation, that our speech must be seasoned with salt. Now, whatever your gracious words are, he says, put some salt on them. Grace needs salt. What does that mean? A lot of theories have been offered, and it's true. Salt is used in all kinds of different ways for different purposes, but we don't need to go into great depth in considering the different uses of salt to understand Paul's point here. Very simply, like something like, take a plate of scrambled eggs. Eggs scrambled are wonderful, but they still need salt. Grace Likewise, needs salt. We can have something good like eggs, but if they're not properly seasoned, they're just kind of Meh, they're bland. They're not very tasty, not very good tasting, not very appetizing. It's amazing how just a little bit of the right seasoning really changes everything, right? But if you ever cook anything, you know that salt is the kind of thing that seasons different things differently. Salt on corn is different than salt on 
watermelon, which is different than, than salt on prime rib, which is different than salt in caramel. But if you, if you know that and you, you end up making a mistake and maybe you mix up your salt with your sugar to make a cake, as soon as you take a bite of that cake, you're going to spit it out immediately, right? If you put too much salt in your, in your pasta sauce, you're going to have to do some work to get the saltiness out so it doesn't ruin your dish entirely. Salt adds, it adds flavor. It adds appropriate spice. It's an important element to a lot of the food that we eat. But not enough salt or too much salt can ruin everything. And this is why we need wisdom in our speech, right? I might try to pull off a well-timed comment like Churchill, but it could be at the wrong time or it could be toward the wrong person. And in so doing, I've burned a bridge. However, there are times when a Churchill-like comment might endear me to a person and give me an opportunity to talk to them about the kingdom because they can discern that maybe we're not all sticks in the mud, but that maybe we're thoughtful and personable and relatable. But we need wisdom to discern how much salt to apply in our speech and at what point in the cooking process, if you will, to apply it. For some things, if it's too soon, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dry out. If it's too late, it's going to be too strong. Salt is not the main dish. Listen, there's nothing virtuous about being bland and boring and tasteless in our speech. There's just not. That's not something that the Lord calls us to be. That's what I've been saying about niceness. Some Christians turn bland speech into a virtue, and so there's nothing really human about our language. But there's also no, nothing of godliness in being overly crude or aggressive or vulgar in our speech. Likewise, there's nothing good about being overly salty, always pessimistic, always negative, always insulting, always argumentative. What does this communicate about our Lord and our trust in Him? So what kind of grace do you offer to outsiders? And how much salt do you put on it? That depends. And that's the third part of the exhortation. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We can't just throw a blanket over all of our speech and say it's all the same. Sometimes we need to lay back a little and have some very gentle, tender-hearted words of kindness for a person. Words like Jesus had for those whom he healed, for the poor, and for the lame, and for the sick, and for the suffering. Think of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Anyone in her community would have easily identified that this woman was a sinner, that she had a sinful lifestyle that she continued to repeat. And so Jesus could have come in with his guns blazing, very salty, and, and, and con convicted her harshly of her sin. And yet he came with words of grace, very patient and very gentle with her. And so Jesus recognized that some needed to hear his words and to know that he came with a healing word and a healing hand and saving grace. The flavor needed to be a little like a warm home-cooked meal, the kind that's good. It's so warm, it's, it's so comforting that you don't want to stop eating it. Everything about it is perfect. But there are times 
when we need to add more salt. We need to kick it up a notch. We need to leave a very distinct flavor in someone's mouth, much like how Jesus talked to the religious leaders. Sometimes salt will give you a punch in the mouth that you need. And sometimes that's exactly the kind of words that need to be used. Something pungent, something strong, something that will communicate truth that needs to be communicated, oftentimes in a hostile environment when there is open mockery of the gospel or complete disregard for what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest gospel preachers the world has ever known, uh, well stated my own challenges when he was once criticized by a woman who told him that he was too witty. He had too many comebacks and witticisms and biting remarks and criticisms. And he replied, Madame, if you know what I didn't say, you wouldn't accuse me of that. <laughs> we need wisdom, brothers and sisters. This isn't an easy thing. We want to assure, ensure that we're walking rightly before the Lord and before outsiders and we're being faithful ambassadors of Christ. Paul addresses speech several times in his letter. He also addresses it when he writes to the Ephesians. And when he wrote to them, he said this. He said, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there always be thanksgiving. That theme comes back up again. This element of thanksgiving is always a part of the Christian's life. In this case, it's part of our prayers. It's part of our speech. So what does he mean by filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking? The word Paul uses for foolish talk is, is literally moronic talk. Proverbs 15.2 15, says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And so the overall thrust here is that our talk is not to be idiotic and foolish and filthy. So as we've said, the Bible encourages humor and laughter. It does. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine. It's good to laugh. It's good to have some levity. In Ecclesiastes, we're reminded that there is a time to laugh. But it's the content of our joking and the source of our laughter that is to be considered. Something doesn't have to be filthy or vulgar or coarse and vile in order to produce laughter. The kind of humor that Paul is talking about very easily spirals downward into a more and more debased and coarse nature, and the more laughs that are aroused, the more willing we are to become profane in those things. And so we need to watch ourselves. But the reality is that when it comes to our words, the heart is always the primary issue, isn't it? The Puritan pastor Thomas Manton said, Men usually discourse as their hearts are, for the tap runneth according to the liquor wherewith the vessel is filled. In other words, as, as Jesus said, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts. The things that we say were first in our hearts. So brothers and sisters, let's continually pray for the reach of the gospel to the ends of the earth praying especially for those that God has called to do His work in difficult places under difficult circumstances. We must also pray for wisdom for ourselves and for each other. We need to know when to speak up. We need to know when to stay quiet. We need to know when to offer a pinch of salt to a warm, comforting mill, or we need to know when to raise some eyebrows because the seasoning is punched up a few notches. We won't always get it right. 
But by God's grace, as we seek to be gracious with thanksgiving, we can be faithful witnesses, seasoned with salt, giving glory to God in all that we pray for, in all that we do, and in all that we say.